Good morning. I'm Jason Black, and this is the BS for Bacon Show. Over the last few weeks, we've done the egg and the chicken, some beef, a little lamb, and the tip to tail of Asia's favorite meat, pork. If you missed any of these previous shows, don't forget you can always listen to them online. Just go to the Radio 3 homepage and find us in the archive. So today, because it's almost junk boat season, I thought we'd do fish and seafood. We'll be starting off, as usual, with J.C. Viennes, our official wine guy. He's sharing birthday plans for the very lovely Maria. Also, Chef Christopher Kerr will be chucking a lobster into the pot with an easy one, two, three for lobster rolls. I've also got some quick tips and tricks for cooking fish and, of course, a how-to for making the perfect beer-battered fish with obligatory tartar sauce. Chef Mike Van Wormelo will be corn-frying oysters and serving them with a beautiful, yes, beautiful, avo grapefruit and bacon dressing. Along with our chefs, I've got a fish-inspired book to review, some alphabet soup, and as always, a gadget test. It's all coming up right after J.C. Vienne's. Good morning, J.C. Good morning, Jason. I have a question for you. Shoot. Okay. So I know that you like traveling, and I've been thinking, when you travel to a place that doesn't have good wine, do you panic? Of course I do. What do you think? <laughs> and do you, ta- do you take wine with you when you go? Sometimes, yes. Okay. Sometimes, yes. If I know the place will not have great wines, for sure, I will fill up my suitcase. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. The problem is I can only bring so many in my suitcase. And so if I leave for a long time, then I don't bring enough. And that's a big panic indeed. Okay. So the next holiday, where is it? Well, Turks and Caicos, because every year it happens to be my wife's birthday in June. If you want to send her greetings, <laughs> Facebook, Maria Conti. Huh? <laughs> And uh, as you know, Jason, happy wife, happy life. Therefore, I always bring her on a holiday for her birthday week. And this time we are going to the Caribbean in the the islands of Turks and Caicos. I was told there's a very good liquor store next to the house that we're renting. But liquor store is not necessarily a wine store. Mm. And as you know, the Caribbean are famous for their rum. Exactly. I'm not a big rum drinker. And I think they are also famous for their beer. I don't know where they get the wheat from, but anyway. And I'm not a big beer drinker. So I'm very much looking forward to what I will discover down there. I'm not sure at all. So when you travel and you know that you're going to only take one or two bottles, how, how do you cope with that? Because wine is a big part of your your diet. dining out. Yes. <laughs> no, not my your diet. diet. You're dining out. <laughs> yes, my diet. My dining out. Yes, first of all, we will dining. Dining in, yeah. uh, but uh, yes, you're right. In this particular situation, since I will pack my suitcase tonight, as a matter of fact, uh, I still don't know what I will do because I also have to bring my mask and my fins for snorkeling. And so that takes space and I may have to sacrifice one or the other. And perhaps it will be good to have a one week without any wine in my body. Now, I know that it, it irritates you a bit when you see the prices of wine in restaurants, knowing uh, what the bottles cost. When you travel, and you, uh, and I, you know, when we go to places like Mauritius or the Seychelles or places like that, we pay exorbitant 
You're uh, absolutely prices. right. Uh, how, do you, how do you feel on your holiday? In fact, this is very interesting <laughs> because I started what I call the Verve Clico Index a few years ago. <laughs> like the McDonald's Index. That's right. You know, I was traveling a lot at some point and it so happened that I was in Amsterdam Airport one day, in London Airport the other day, and in Paris Airport the other day. And I noticed the Verve Clico had a different price. So I started to take pictures of the bottle. So... That summer, I traveled to Miami and I saw Veuve Clicquot for $24.95 US dollars. And the following autumn, I traveled to Sydney and there it was $75.99 US dollars for the same bottle. So I went crazy. I said, how can it be 25 in Costco in Miami and 75 in some wine shop down the street in Sydney? To me, it was incredible. So I started to ask the question, transportation is a big deal, but apparently that some uh, wine companies also um, control the prices of the market depending on the market penetration they want to to achieve. So uh, wine is not necessarily only about the product, the price of the wine. Sometimes it's also about prestige, marketing strategy, and uh, other, other aspects. So it's price to market. Price to market, absolutely yeah. 100% price to market. Mm. So now the normal guy in the street would have done that with beer, for example. How much does it cost for a Heineken? The uh, the Verve Clicquot is the posh way to do, I suppose. Well, I suppose, yeah, <laughs> the, the Heineken index, I never thought of this, but uh, I suppose it's possible to do that as well, yeah? Yeah. Just like the Big Mac index of uh, The Economist magazine. Uh, I give you another story. One time I was in Venice and it was we were there to celebrate my wife's birthday. And she turned 80 that night. And we were in this restaurant that I had booked six months in advance. I was so looking forward to go there. And mainly local people, Venetians, go there. And I was so excited. So I opened the, the wine list and I ordered a bottle of wine. Uh, good producer I knew and I really wanted to drink this wine. And the waiter said, no, we don't have it. And I said, what's going on? I, okay, then in that case... My second choice, no, we don't have it. My third choice, we don't have it. And it was all Sauvignon Blanc. So the way to say, oh, I know what you like. Uh, don't worry, I have a beautiful little bottle to serve you. It will be delicious. And I said, okay, fine. But my wife looked at him. She says, be careful. My husband uh, knows a little bit about wine. And of course, the waiter looked at me. But of course, he knows about wine. All husbands know about wine, especially husbands with a French accent. And so he says, but don't worry. Uh, if you, he doesn't like the wine, I will take it back. And I will drink it myself. So he came and I saw, I saw as soon as he arrived that the bottle would be the cheapest possible wine you can imagine. First of all, the bottle was translucent. The label was stuck by hand. The, the, the capsule was in cheap plastic. And I saw that the, the, the cork itself was plastic. So just looking at the cost of material, I knew the bottle was X, X seller for mm, one euro maximum. But he wanted to charge me 16 euro for it. So I said, wait a minute. So he's going to pull the cork and I am sure he's going to smell the cork. And if he does smell the plastic cork, I will reject the wine without even tasting it. And so he did exactly what I expected. He pulled the cork, smelled the cork. He says, wow, wonderful. And then I said to him, no, I don't want your wine. He says, why? I don't want your wine. To make a long story short, at the end of the meal, I got up and it so happened that right Next to me was the wine fridge, but I did not notice the wine fridge. I looked in the wine fridge. Every single wine I wanted to order mm -hmm. were inside. I was so upset because, you know, wine is the biggest con job 
anybody, a bar or a restaurant can pull on you. I'm sorry, Jason, you're on the other side, but I'm, I'm on the side of the wine lover and I say, be careful what you wish for. I think it's the same in every industry, though. You know, oh, there's, sure. there's markup and the, I think the, the restaurants that are run by people that are passionate about food and wine charge a fair price. A fair price, exactly. Mm. But exactly. they have to make a profit. Absolutely. Um, there's I'm, a difference I'm between making a profit and being rapacious, but it, it has to be fair. I'm all for it. But I don't think he did that to make the money out of you. I think he did that because he was going to pull a fast one thinking, here's another tourist. Let me do what I can. Exactly. JC Viennes will be sharing more stories about wine from his travels next week. Today's book, Fish and Shellfish, The Cook's Indispensable Companion by James Peterson, is a comprehensive guide to all things meat without feet. The book covers every aspect of seafood cookery, from the initial purchase, what to look for to ensure freshness, to the sources best suited to the fish, and of course your mood. And given that many types of fish and shellfish lend themselves to being eaten raw, there are ample recipes for oysters, ceviches, cures, and smoking too. The book has its own dictionary focusing on finfish, detailing both freshwater and saltwater varieties, and every possible preparation is covered – baking, braising, grilling, shallow frying, deep frying, steaming, and of course poaching. A great number of cuisine types appear, so there's no risk of running out of options. If you're in the mood for something hearty like a bouillabaisse, or something with a spicy kick like the blackened fish, or Thai swordfish skewers, the book has you covered. James Peterson's book also has a comprehensive selection of compound butters, sauces, coatings and dips, so you'll never run out of options when it comes to preparing a great seafood-inspired dinner. The photography is good, perhaps a little old-fashioned compared to modern plating styles, but this shouldn't deter you, especially if you're new to cooking. Old can be good, but obviously not when you're asking your fishmonger to find you things for dinner. Now, there are a great number of fish-inspired books out there. Some are regionally inspired by cuisine type, and some are more generic focusing on fish, available from different markets. The late great Charlie Trotter's book is another of these that's worth having, but is certainly more complicated than this one to cook from. In my opinion, if you are looking for one book, a one-book cooking guide to all things from the sea, then Fishing and Shellfish by James Peterson is probably the best choice out there. It's a keeper and worth forking your dosh out for. Talking about making good choices, the lobster roll is one that's perfect for a summer lunch. In fact, long live the lobster roll. Let's chat to Cullen Pistol chef Christopher Kerr about the restaurant's signature sandwich. Rock lobster So basically we start with the live lobster that's been in the fridge or we've, we've put the knife in the top of the head just so it doesn't flap about a lot in a big pot. I've seen a lot of chefs put live lobsters that are very active into big pots and uh, flap about and there's boiling water being thrown about the kitchen so it can be quite dangerous so be a little bit careful when doing it. So okay we're going to start with our, um, with our lobster live. The best best way to hold a lobster is behind the claws so it's not flapping about too much it's not going to be spitting water everywhere so we basically just take the take the lobster 
and then we put them into our into our stock. In the restaurant, we use a we use a called bouillon base um, to poach our lobsters, and we cook them for eight minutes only. Um, and a cooked bouillon is is ninety percent water, about five percent white wine, five percent vinegar or lemon juice, and then a combination of vegetables, a mirepoix of vegetables, so carrots, onions, leek, and celery, a little bit of fennel, some black peppercorns. Okay, so now we're gonna take our lobster out of the water. Here we go, get him out. And uh, there's a few different ways of, of stopping the cooking of your lobster. Um, some people tend to put their lobsters into ice water, but again, you get all of that natural flavor that's retained into the lobster. Sitting in an ice water bath, it tends to leak out a little bit, or the meat tenses up because it goes too cold too quickly. Eight minutes cooking time is just enough to cook all the meat. And then we put it in a tray and just put the cling film over it and that residual heat that, that makes the steam inside of that, that case, enclosed tray, will just finish off the cooking of the lobster. It will loosen it from around the, the shell in the claws, which makes it a lot easier to get out of the shell when cracking the lobster open. And a, a big tip that I can give for, uh, for people who are cooking and preparing lobsters is that the, the lobster should always be brought out of the shell while the meat is still warm. If you let the lobster go cold, the protein that's inside the meat, it sets and basically the meat is a lot harder to get out of the shell when you try to take the claw out. The, the claw will be stuck inside the shell or breaking open the tail. We take off both the claws. When we prep a lobster, we break it down into three main parts. It's normally the claw and the arm and then the tail and then the head left over. So the head we use to, to we clean out the, the insides of the head a little bit and, um, and then we, we roast them off. Um, and mix them with vegetables later on and we make a, a lobster bisque or a lobster stock that's where we use that for soup so we try to use as much of the lobster as possible because so there's not a lot of wastage to it so uh, we remove the claws and then we're going to crack open the head um, and remove the tail and then so the head stays aside we clean that we use that for our soup the tail we just crack open the the shell basically use two hands to push it together and it pops together and then crack it open like so and and you pull the meat out in a, in a hole, it's a whole tail. So when the, the meat's come out of the tail, we, we put a little split along the back of the tail to pull the, the vein out of the back of the meat, which contains a lot of the digestion of the lobster. It's, it can taint the meat, it can stain it, you know, uh, not very nice to eat. We are, we're gonna move on to then now the claws. So basically, uh, the claw is made up of two parts. It's the fat part of the claw, and the, very, and the very thin part. So if you pull back on the thin part far enough, the, th the feather bone will pop out, um, and then you discard that to the side or keep that for your soup, and you're left with a claw that has just the, the meat inside and a little bit of the, the, they're called chink shells. There's two chink shells. So we snap them off, um, and you're just left with the claw. Then we're just gonna crack that open a little bit with a knife, um, and then give it a little, sh so the back of the shell snaps off, and then we just give it a little bit of a shake so that protein inside is still warm and then the meat should just slide straight out now the two chinks you break them in half again and you can you can use a, a small knife or some scissors to cut them open and pull it out okay so for our lobster roll we look for something that's very fresh in terms of bread so at the restaurant we use a, a brioche bun or you can use a really nice soft white bread the richer the bread the better and basically, our, our lobster roll is very simple. We just use a lemon mayonnaise. So it's, it's, it'll be one part lemon to 0.5 part of a lemon juice and some zest. So it's very small amounts of lemon juice in the, 
mayonnaise with some of the zest and you can put some chopped chives in there if you like or some dill if that's your thing so we're just going to put the mayonnaise onto the the bread and then the lobster meat is still warm straight out of the bouillon so we're just going to break it up or chop it up into little chunks um, lay it on top of the bread you could also do if you like if it's, if it's something that that makes it a little bit special which we do in the restaurants is toast the bread first we just butter the outside of it and put it on the flat grill or you can do it in a pan get that nice golden crispy crunch on the outside of the bread we can do it under the salamander or in the toaster or in the oven. Basically, just pop the lemon mayonnaise inside the bread, add the, uh, the lobster on top, and you can finish it with some chives or some spring onion. Serve it as you like. Enjoy, guys. Lobster rock, lobster rock, lobster rock. Ah, ah. That was Chef Christopher Kerr of the Cullen Pistol. Now, over the last 15 shows, we've tested gadgets that have, for the most part, sounded like a great idea. A lot of them have failed miserably, but you can't knock them for trying. At least there was some thought. Today's gadget defies belief. In fact, it's so bad I decided to test it myself. But between you and I, it was mostly because I didn't have the balls to ask any of my friends to do it. I have the Carrot and Curl Decorative Carrot Cutter. I couldn't resist buying this, actually. If you want a basic description, it looks like one of those old-fashioned pencil sharpeners in a very beautiful orange with a nice carrot look to it. As you know, with all things vegetable, it's best to peel it, so let's take this rather large carrot and peel it. Don't you love it when you have a gadget and it actually works? Probably one of the best ones out there, that. Okay, that was a good peeler. Right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the carrot and I'm going to put it into this decorative carrot shaver. And let's see what it does. Well, it actually does shave the carrot and you end up with these little bits of carrot that resemble pencil sharpenings. Um, but I'm buggered if I know what I'd do with them. That's another one for the trash can. Moving on, there are no fence-sitters when it comes to eating oysters. You either do or you don't. And within the I do camp, you'll get your purists who'll only eat them raw. I was a raw-only guy until I spent a year working in New Orleans. Deep-fried oysters are a way of life there, and it's certainly a life worth living. Chef Mike Van Warmelo, one of our city's great chefs and a regular on the show, has recently taken up a new role at the much-loved Kinsale in Kennedy Town. Let's get his take on cooked oysters. Hi there. Once you've got your oysters, get them ready. Lay them on uh, some absorbent paper just to take up any moisture because you don't want them too wet when you're frying. And we're going to make a lovely mix. I like to use, uh, buy yourself some nice cornmeal. Something you can see that's really yellow, it's got that really nice flavour. The idea of it is imparting that, that lovely toasted corn flavour. Now I make a batter, I use a little bit of um, uh, besan flour or chickpea flour when I make a batter. Purely because the chickpea flour adds another, another flavour to it. It's got a nuttiness that I like. Uh, so it's a little mix of, uh, you probably use thirds, I like to use thirds. So third cornmeal, third flour and a third cornstarch. I use a little bit of cornstarch. This helps get a crispiness to it. I just mix a slight bit of... Uh, I like to use a bit of soda water or something with a bit of sparkle. 
you could use beer if you wanted to add a bit of flavour. I don't think you need it too strong because you want that corn flavour to come through. In that batter, you would also add some salt and pepper. Your seasoning is very important. Next, uh, you would get that ready on the side. Get your oil warming up. If you've got a, one of those small home fryers, fantastic. This is something that's great because it doesn't need a huge fryer. It's a small dish you could do at home. Nextly, the guacamole. Beautiful, fresh avocado. Talk to your veggie supplier or really look for the best avocados you can find. The ripest. You don't want them too overripe because they get dark spots and don't look so nice. You want that beautiful green colour. And we're going to mash those that avocado. We're going to add a little bit of red shallot or red onion. I like to use some lime. Add a little bit of chilli, guys. I like it a little bit. It doesn't have to be blow your head off hot, but it adds a beautiful flavour to the, to the guacamole. And some fresh coriander. It's one of my, my favourite herbs. It's a very particular herb. A lot of people don't like it, but if you use it wisely in this particular dish, really nice. Uh, salt and pepper and some fresh lime juice, a little bit of acid. If you don't have limes, you can use some lemon. Uh, I think lime works really well, and it's probably more natural to go with a, a guacamole. Then we're going to make your lovely dressing. So I like to use cherry tomatoes, but if you bought some beautiful red ripe tomatoes on the, uh, from the veg shop, get them on a tray, on a baking tray, a little bit of salt and pepper. I like to add some uh, fresh thyme, what, what herbs you've got, and a dusting of uh, sugar, just to help bring out the sweetness. Into the oven, 180, 190 degrees, quite high. Let them caramelise on the top and soften. You don't want to do like a full dried tomato. You're just roasting them so you're bringing out those uh, caramelised flavours, the sweetness, but you're leaving some of the moisture, which you need for your dressing. Once your uh, tomatoes are done, and you, uh, you can pop some bacon in while they're doing actually and, and roast the bacon pieces. I like to get that because I like the oil that comes out. You keep that oil in the tray. And you want to use that oil because it, it goes into your dressing and, and helps give it a richness. Uh, it's obviously not the most healthy, but it tastes good. Anyway, uh, into a blender, your lovely roasted tomatoes, your bacon pieces... Keep your baking quite soft. It will help blend into the, the dressing nicely. You would add a little, uh, maybe a shallot or two, a little bit of garlic. You could add mustard. I just you tend to use a little bit of a nice vinegar, sherry vinegar, and then just blend it. Let it emulsify with a little bit of uh, a fairly neutral oil. Don't use a too strong olive oil. It will take over the flavour. Blend it into a, a really nice emulsion. Taste. If it needs a little bit of seasoning, finish it off. And then... In a bowl, I like to do it in a bowl because you can add some of the dressing in the bottom. It, it, it swamps the bottom of the bowl. A really nice big scoop of your creamy guacamole. And then I reckon for a, an entree size serve, you would probably do three oysters if they were quite large. They've been fried gently in a probably only 170 to 180 degrees in the fryer. You don't want it too hot and you don't want to overcook the oyster. You want to keep the creaminess of that oyster in the middle. But you do want to get that golden brown crispiness on the outside. Uh, once they're fried, you can. Uh, I like to dust with a little bit of sea salt and a pinch of really nice smoky paprika as well, just to layer another flavour on the top. And uh, beautiful, a couple of sprigs of beautiful uh, coriander and some, uh, you know, a piece of lime, and you've got a really amazing summer dish. 
It's beautiful. 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 <laughs> that was Big Mike Van Wormelo at Kinsel. Now, seafood, if you ask any chef, is probably the most difficult protein to cook. It requires precision, the right temperature, and it certainly doesn't behave nicely if you cook it too long. Fish, pretty much like cuts of beef, also lends itself to different cooking methods, and you'd be wise to adhere to these for proper results. Fish can be split into two types, flatfish and roundfish. Roundfish are often more fatty, lending themselves to grilling, pan-frying, sautéing and baking, but often fail miserably in the deep fryer. If the fish is lean, poaching, steaming and other moist preparations work best. Using the correct method also applies to seafood, and likewise, whatever method you're using, most seafoods can't be overcooked or they'll toughen beyond belief. There's nothing worse than an overcooked plate of king prawns or lobsters especially at Hong Kong prices. On the other end of the cost scale, but in no way less noble, fish and chips is a personal favourite. For this, I love pollock, hake, haddock, and a fish that's very popular in South Africa called kinglip. Here it's called ling. Now, making the perfect beer-battered fish relies on a few simple rules. Your batter needs to be light, so a raising agent is needed, be that baking powder, yeast, or even sparkling water. The batter should be made well in advance, and it should be very cold, just the same as your fish. Your fish fillet should be quite thin. You want them to be cooked at the same time that your batter is deliciously crispy and golden. Now, this should take about five minutes, so don't use pieces of fish that are too thick. And the oil? Yes, it needs to be hot. At least 175 to 180 degrees and don't cook too many fillets at the same time. You want to deep fry it, not shallow fry it. Importantly, you need to keep the oil temperature constant or you'll end up with a soggy mess. Battered fish should always be served with chips, vinegar and mushy peas. And of course, tartar sauce. It's very simply made with real mayonnaise, chopped capers, cornichons and shallots. Add a little bit of seasoning with some lemon juice, some parsley, and you're good to go. Right, let's put the fishtails aside and have a little bit of alphabet soup. We're starting with the tea for Tammy, a fine double mesh sieve that's used to get beautifully smooth soups and sauces. Tea is also for tapioca, large granules of starch from the cassava plant, which when cooked, becomes jelly-like and may very well remind you of the tea for terrible school dinners. Tea is also for tarama, a smoked codfish roe that's often blended with olive oil and bread to make taramasalata. Moving on, you is for umami, the fifth element of taste and the Japanese word for delicious or savory. Keeping it Japanese, you is also for unagi, the Japanese for eel. Lastly in the U's today is the U for upside down cake, a cake where the presentation ingredients are put at the bottom of the pan before topping it with batter and baking it. Of course, you serve it the right way up. That's it from me, Jason Black. Until next Saturday, bye for now.